This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this uh, Tuesday to the Bible line, and as always, we're so glad you can be with us for the next hour. Maybe there are some issues that you're facing in your personal life or ministry, or just a passage that you're studying. What we do here is you call in at 843-525-1859, and you can go on the air live, or you can simply dictate your question, however you're most comfortable in giving it to us, or you can email it here directly at tbl. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And when you call, uh, we do our best by God's grace to respond to the question that you have from God's Word. All right. Well, Rick, as always, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's go ahead and jump in with both feet and we'll get started. All right, Pastor. We had a question left over from last week. Would you please recommend a good study Bible? Well, uh, there are a lot of good ones, and, and again, I would always qualify to say that, that I'm sure there are no two pastors that agree 100% on everything. Uh, the John MacArthur Study Bible is an excellent one that's available in the New American Standard, and I think it's also available in the New King James. Uh, the Ryrie Study Bible is also a very good one that's been around for a long time. So those are two right off the top that I would suggest. The notes are very well done. Um, so, uh, again, you may not agree with every point on it, but on you know 98% of the uh, issues that are discussed, uh, it's very clear, very plain in both of those study Bibles, and they're, they're very, very helpful. All right. And another listener would like to know if you would please recommend a solid Bible-believing church in the Statesboro, Georgia area. You know, I would have to research that um, because, you know, churches change. And if I told you at church right now that I haven't uh, looked at in 10 years, for all I know, they've had three pastors since then, and the church could be dramatically different. But a good starting place is you go online. Uh, Most churches, if they have, uh, you know, any desire to reach out in the day that we live in, will have some kind of online presence. If they don't, well, that's okay, uh, but you need to get a doctrinal statement, which uh, may or may not mean anything, because unfortunately, very often you can have a sound doctrinal statement, but not a sound practical application of those doctrinal truths that may have been formed 100 years ago or 50 years ago by believers who not only uh, believed what they wrote, but were deeply committed to practicing those truths. But that's a starting place, because obviously if the doctrinal statement is wacko, then uh, you don't um, want to pursue any further that particular church. In addition, uh, you want to go to the church and see if uh, they have some marks of health. Uh, Is there one Bible teaching of any kind? 
is the pastor attempting to open the Bible and to, with authority and the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, teach what God has written. Now, some may do it more uh, in-depth than others, but is that present at all? Uh, You can often measure the life and health of a church just by the way people sing. You go into a church, sometimes you'd say, "This, this church is as dead as a doornail. There's no excitement here. And I'm not talking about some, you know, charismatic, wacko, foam at the mouth, uh, you know, get slain in the spirit on the ground. But, but you know, where there's joy, you know it. Where there's people who are in love with Christ, you hear it. And so that's um, one measurement. You might also see if they have some uh, ministries that are reflective of solid biblical truth, like if a church had a wana. Uh, approved workmen and not ashamed is the uh, an acronym for a wanna. But if they had that, then you know at least doctrinally they had to pass a certain test for the wanna organization to allow them to represent them at their local church. Uh, you might sometimes look at women's ministries and you know are they endorsing in an unhealthy way someone like Beth Moore, who you know obviously is egalitarian no matter what she wants to call herself and really doesn't respect pastors who don't, you know, agree with uh, many of her erroneous teachings. So you, you want to see if uh, women's ministry is healthy because women play such a vital role in any local church and they are reflective of, of health in a church very often and what that church is committed to. So those, those would be a few starting things uh, that might point you in the right direction. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good morning. Thanks for calling today. How can we be of help, my brother? Y- yes, sir. i got to have a, I gotta say a comment or a statement to say. What do you think about that? It's a shame that the God's pinnacle creation is being whooped by a little piece of paper with a little tobacco in it. And it's, you know, especially for Christians who've been smoking 20 years, what the Spirit of God, who the Spirit of God who created everything into existence, is being whooped so easily by a piece of little cigarette or or, or, or alcohol. I mean, it's a, that's a shame. The pinnacle of God's creation being whooped. They can't overcome that. Do you think that's pathetic? Well, you know, um, again, you know, we have to measure where people are at in their walk with Christ, but assuming, let's just say, they are a brand-new Christian and they've just come into the kingdom. Uh, Sometimes uh, Christians can be very hard on a new Christian and they've forgotten where maybe they have come from. And so someone, say, uh, has been smoking cigarettes for 30 years and they find Christ as their personal Savior. Uh, it takes time to grow in a relationship with Christ, but yes, it is an issue that needs to be addressed because obviously it's not a mystery. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are to treat it kindly and respectfully. Uh, and I said to say that we have organizations like, well, even Moody Bible Institute, you know, they now tell their professors as long as they drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation, they can be on our faculty and staff. And you think, you know, like, where are you guys coming from? You know, wh- what are you thinking? Um, it's not a mystery that, you know, tobacco is harmful to the body. 
And so we don't want to use it, uh, but it's an addictive agent. And some things are not necessarily evil, but they can become addictive. Um, my grandson asked me the other day, and it was a great question. I was speaking in Atlanta, and so I had a chance to visit with them. And he said, Granddaddy, he said, what do you think about, you know, drinking too much coffee? And I said, he said, isn't it a drug? I said, well, there's a stimulant in coffee. It's called caffeine. But Paul said, you know, and he was quoting a uh, probably a common proverbial statement in Corinth that all things are profitable, but not all things are lawful. What's important is how he expounds on it. And so something may be profitable, um, but not necessarily lawful and uh, beneficial. And so we need to um, think our way very, very carefully how we apply truth Uh, to scripture. So he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. So it might be okay uh, to do certain things, smoking, not one of them, but if they are governing me, uh, because he goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. So I, I get it, say, with coffee, if someone's on 25 glasses of coffee a day, they're probably have developed an unhealthy lifestyle. And some would take that and then they'll say, well, you know, you could make the same argument for tobacco. But tobacco has very harmful effects on the body. And that's a well-established fact. But with that said, like with any drug, sometimes there is a process where you have to be weaned off of it. Some can go cold turkey and never touch another cigarette again. And I respect that, and I think that's wonderful for many people who've come out of, you know, that kind of a history. But for other people, they have to kind of wean themselves off of the drug because it is such an addictive kind of drug. In fact, uh, this vaping thing that now, unfortunately, even little children are adopting, you know, it's, uh, you, you talk about caffeine, and not caffeine levels, but nicotine levels, it's just off the charts, uh, so sometimes people, when they use a single vape device, they're getting an equivalent of three packages of cigarettes. And so they're really getting addicted to nicotine, to this drug, not to mention some of the processes that have been used, uh, you know, have been so harmful where so many people have died or they've had permanent lung injury, which is really, really sad. But I don't think it's rocket science to say that a Christian shouldn't use cigarettes, not even in moderation, for the simple fact that uh, it is a drug, it's harmful to the body, you're not to do anything that harms the body, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and therefore God's grace is sufficient, and through the sanctifying process, he can help a person to get off of their cigarettes. Uh, And there comes a point, usually depending on how heavy a person smokes of 30 to 45 days, a lot of medical websites will tell you to have it totally eradicated from your system. And then the smoking of a cigarette is often with association. Oh, I sit down in the morning and it used to be I read the newspaper or I read the internet or whatever and, and I have a cigarette with that whole process. And so there's an associative behavior that needs to be broken. And God's big enough to do that. His sanctifying power is big enough. And and it's a bad testimony. We were on vacation maybe five or six years ago in North Carolina. 
And we, as we walked into the church, some of the deacons were out on the front steps smoking cigarettes between Sunday school and the worship service. And I said, this is not a good sign, Audrey, as we walked in. This is not a good sign, you know. And I'm deacon so-and-so, and and, uh, let me put this cigarette out, you know. Um, It's not a good testimony. And it basically says that, you know, God is not big enough. Uh, to help me get past this. But at the same hand, let's not be like crucify people, especially if they're new in the faith, because it does take time to grow. And God doesn't deal with every issue in our life all at once. He unfolds his plan for us. And cigarettes or alcohol might be early on in the sanctifying process, but still it takes time. And, you know, when someone comes into the church and, you know, you can smell them three feet away or they come into my office and, you know, they're a visitor. And when they leave, I got to take out the Lysol and spray down the room for the next, uh, you know, council lead that's coming in because the cigarette smell is so heavy. I'm not going to crucify them. I want to meet them where they're at. I want to share Christ with them and lead them into the kingdom. And then God will help them as they grow in Christ and they learn uh, and they're going to realize this is behavior that's not, you know, really pleasing to the Lord, and they need to move past it. Anyway, decent question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Marilyn says her father-in-law wanted to know what you thought about Jonathan Kahn. Uh, her father-in-law's cousin is really getting interested in Kahn, and he doesn't know how to respond to his cousin. These guys are in their late 80s, Marilyn says, and she says that her father-in-law doesn't think Khan is biblical. Would you please give some direction, and she would really appreciate it. Well, he's a pretty controversial fellow. He wrote a book called The Harbinger that we used to get a lot of questions uh, some years back. A harbinger is some you know prediction, often a warning, and so he wrote a book by that title. But the basic thesis of the book is he equates America— uh, with Israel. In fact, he basically paints a picture that America is the new Israel and that we play a special role in God's plan. And he tried to uh, find, you know, parallels between, uh, even in further writings, between the following of the, the, the towers falling and 9-11 and, you know, as a judgment of God and that this was actually prophesied in Scripture and He's a Jewish brother, and, and I don't want to say he's not a Christian. I, I don't think I can say that, but I do think he, he's really in error in a lot of major areas. One, to say that America has replaced Israel, which is kind of surprising for a Messianic Jew to paint that picture. Uh, listen, Israel is the only nation in the world that God made a covenant relationship with, is established by, by Israel. Um, you know, and so he'll, he'll make comparisons between Solomon and George Washington. And, but here's really where he gets on shaky ground. And, and this is way past his book, uh, that he wrote. Um, you see him on a lot of the charismatic networks like TBN, uh, you know, which, you know, one hour they can have somebody decent and the next hour they can have some blazing heretic, uh, kind of like uh, Charisma Magazine, you know, where just last month they slandered a great man of God, John MacArthur, because uh, he was trying to affirm the high and holy role that God has given to women by uh, when he was questioned about Beth Moore. 
And so you've got these groups that put experience way above everything else. And so uh, he is uh, one who believes and embraces something that's called Kabbalah. And Kabbalah is an ancient mystical form of Judaism. And there's a book called Zohar that they follow. In fact, recently I was in Israel and I got there a little bit before the rest of the group to prepare and I had a whole day to do some touring and I went with a Orthodox Jewish uh, guy who was into Kabbalah. And so he was a mystical Jew. And so again, experience becomes king. And so you'll have a guy like Jonathan Cain talk about atonement. And very often the new agers do the same thing that he's doing, that atonement means at one mint, at one mint with God. And and he argues in some of his uh, online videos that he can show you how to get at one mint with God and how you can have this special relationship with God that not all believers experience. And as soon as people start opening that door where they put the experiential realm, that's what Beth Moore is doing. Uh, she's putting the experiential realm over the authority of God's scripture. She can say what she wants. But when, you know, she says, well, God spoke to me. God said, Beth, go out and build a snowman with me. And, you know, just this weird stuff. It's the same thing Sarah Young does in Jesus Calling, where, you know, you get direct revelations from God. And it's the same thing that Jonathan Cain is doing, where God speaks directly to him. Well, God can speak directly to an individual through the written word of God, but he is not using these special means of revelation where you have some inside corner and it makes you some big shot in your spirituality, which is often what is portrayed, unfortunately, by many, many of these people. So he's a very dangerous person. Um, and again, I can't definitively say he's a false prophet. At worst, he's a false prophet. At best, he's an incredibly immature Christian who knows very little about Scripture and if anything, he is paving the way for what will come, especially during the time of the tribulation period, where false prophets and false messiahs will come. And based on experience, you know, oh, they, they must be a man of God. She must be a woman of God. Look at the experience that they have are having. Look at the miracle that they've done. And Jesus said they'll be so convincing that they would deceive even the elect if possible. So he falls into that camp. He's very, very dangerous. And uh, the works that he's done and the fact that he's just on these wacko networks, let's, let's just be honest. You know, TBN, they're a bunch of shysters, crooks. They've ripped off, you know, evangelicals for, for decades, along with Pentecostal and charismatic Christians. And uh, they've got a lot of accounting to do when they meet the living God and, you know, who would want to associate themselves with that? And in the early years, they weren't as bad. And so you might have some conservative guy on there maybe trying to, you know, make a, a witness through the broadcast lines that they had. But now most conservative, Bible-believing, faithful men of God and women of God won't even go on those networks anymore uh, for the simple reason that they have crossed the line that is so far that they have to exercise biblical separation in those situations. So anyway, I hope that helps. All right. 843-525-1859. And, and let me just say, if if this person, you know, wants to explore this further, you could just Google, you know, Jonathan Cain 
He spells it not C-A-N, but C-A-I-N, but C-A-H-N. And you can watch a lot of his videos. And there's a lot of even three or four minute YouTube videos. And all you have to do is like listen to him for three or four minutes. And if you know even a little bit of the Bible, you'll be able to say, now let's think about what he just said. He just quoted as an authoritative book, uh, a Kabbalah book called Zohar. And um, in, since when has that become some source of authority that a preacher should use? So you can just hear him speak and say, well, wait a minute, that totally contradicts what God said over here. So he's got some very dangerous markings on him. He wouldn't deny Jesus is God or anything like that, but he's got some huge dangerous markings on him. Anyway, let's move on. Frederick from Pooler, Georgia writes, I understand that Robert Jeffers recently endorsed Paula White's ministry. What is your take on this? Can you share any relevant scripture? Well, Paula White is a heretic. So, you know, I don't, you know, back off. I I might a little bit on Jonathan Cain to say he's, maybe he's a Christian, maybe he's not. She denies, you can go online again, the deity of Christ on one little video that she has. But even if she didn't, all of her associations with all the error that she's engaged in. Uh, she's involved with the new apostolic reformation movement. And we've had questions from time to time on the Bible line about that group. And they are just sheer definitive heretics departing from major biblical doctrines. You know, there are secondary issues that someone could embrace that erroneously and still be a Christian but you can't be off on the non-negotiables of the faith. And so, you know, Charisma Magazine, you know, asks for an apology from John MacArthur for the things that he said that were just plain truth in reference to Beth Moore. And they call him the fundamentalist preacher John MacArthur said. And I doubt they probably even know what a fundamentalist is and what the historical... Um, you know, uh, meaning of the word is. Uh, So, you know, the new apostolic reformation movement that she's closely associated with is totally heretical, and they depart not on secondary issues, but primary issues. And so some non-negotiables would be things like the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the infallibility and the completeness and sufficiency of God's word, the bodily resurrection, the bodily return. So the new apostolic reformation movement departs from major historical truth. And so for anyone in any way, shape, or form to identify with that group, they are either blindly ignorant to what Scripture says about separation on primary critical issues that are necessary to embrace to make someone a Christian, or you actually believe what they are teaching. Um, and it was surprising that Robert Jeffers and not just him, but Jack Graham and Franklin Graham and Franklin Graham was the most surprising to me that Franklin Graham, because he really just, you know, is usually 99.99% of the time, just right on target and unafraid and not in the least bashful to, uh, stand up for what's right. Um, Jerry Falwell Jr. as well, you know, these guys all came and Rick and I were discussing this one day because, um, their endorsement was almost word for word. Wasn't it Rick? Yeah. They looked like they had all written the same, you know, endorsement of of her book. 
Yeah, you know, like, oh, yeah, my great friend, Paula White. And, you know, I can see maybe where Jeffers is coming from because uh, he's kind of buddy-buddy with that whole presidential group. Um, and since Paula White is the uh, personal um, spiritual advisor or slash pastor to the president, in fact, uh, before he got elected, he was talking about building a glass cathedral for her. Um, you know, even a guy like Russell Moore, who can be highly controversial on some issues, uh, he's the um, head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. He classified Paula White, Kane, or whatever her most recent last name is, because she's on her third marriage. And understand, she I'm not, you know, ragging on someone because they're on a third or a fourth or a fifth marriage. I'm not talking about a woman at the well conversion. I'm talking about someone who's in quote unquote ministry, who's living an adulterous lifestyle. So, you know, she's having an adulterous affair with another charismaniac, uh, Benny Hinn. You see him on television, you know, and he touches people and they're all falling over. And, and no, I don't buy for a second as a caller wrote me a few weeks ago here that maybe he's had a change of heart. He hasn't had a change of heart on anything. He's just a charlatan and a heretic as well. And that's how Russell Moore classified this woman. And she is so far off on major doctrines to give endorsement to her. It's just wrong. And again, you know, she's the personal, you know, spiritual advisor to the president. Maybe Robert Jeffress didn't want to shake the waters there or Jack Graham. I don't know. But those guys were just flat out wrong to give such endorsement to such a charlatan and such a heretic. And so she's having an affair with Benny Hinn. She breaks up another marriage and then she gets married again. And, you know, even if she wasn't a pastor, even if she was doing what a woman is supposed to do with women, uh, but she calls herself a female pastor, she pastors a church. I mean, she's just dripping with heresy and error. And why these guys endorsed her is absolutely beyond me. It's just mind-blowing. And they were wrong, and I hope at some point they will publicly come out and say they were wrong and say, hey, we were way off in, in, in endorsing someone who is leading people, in essence, to hell, because that's what she's doing. When you deny the deity of Christ and you get people to embrace that truth, you're leading them to hell. You're not leading them to heaven. So why on earth would you endorse such a heretic is beyond me. All right, very good. Um, Our next caller has a question about John 18, verses 4 to 6. After Jesus asked, whom do you seek? They answered, and then in verse 6, they fell to the ground. Is this the basis of being slain in the Spirit in some churches? Also, what was the meaning of them falling to the ground? Well, Benny Hinn would say that. This is like their text. This is their biblical justification for being slain in the spirit. And, but that's certainly not what is unfolding here. Jesus earlier in John, the 10th chapter, when you come to John 10, uh, you're coming towards the end of Christ's public ministry. You say, but that look, there's 21 chapters. John 11 takes place about two to three weeks before the crucifixion. Um, John 12 takes place six days before Passover in which Jesus is crucified. So Jesus at this point in John's pericope is beginning to make some very firm and clear statements about why he has come here and how things are going to unfold. 
and he'll say in the 10th chapter, no one will take my life from me. Um, he says, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. So Jesus is making a clear, plain statement that he is over his death, that no one is going to take it away from me. You see how he's over his resurrection and that he comes out of the grave on the third day. Uh, but John 18 is a beautiful display of what unfolds. We are told that Judas then, having received the Roman cohort. So if you remember, this was some prearranged meeting that Judas had with the Roman commander, with a Roman cohort or a battalion. And a Roman cohort could be 600 or 1,000. But when you come down to verse 12 of this chapter, it said, so the Roman cohort and the commander... And the word here for commander is the Greek word chiliarchus, and we get our word chiliism from it. And so we speak of the chiliistic reign of Christ, that is the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And so this is a leader of a thousand men. Mark says a multitude came to arrest Jesus. Matthew qualifies it by saying a great multitude came to arrest him. And John, with the greatest specificity, said a Roman battalion came. Further, a Roman battalion led by a leader of a thousand men, a Chiliarchus, not to mention the officers of the Jews. That would be um, some of the Sanhedrin, and they're coming along in all these religious cohorts. And, of course, after Judas identifies him to the commander with a greeting, with a kiss, as they do in many parts of the world, uh, we're told Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I am. Now, in some Bibles, he is italicized, I am he. But the italics, remember, in the New Testament are added by the translators, sometimes to smooth out the English. It seems rather awkward. He said to them, I am. But actually, that is a literal rendering and very helpful because if you remember when God identifies himself at the burning bush with Moses and Moses asks there in Exodus, you know, God, the Jewish people will want to know your name. He said, tell them my name is I am, not I was, not I will be, but tell them I am whom I am sends you. And so Jesus takes to his lips here in Greek, ego ami, In Aramaic and in Hebrew, it's simply Yahweh. I am the divine, most sacred name for God. In fact, when Jews come to this particular four four consonants in the Hebrew Bible, because remember, in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, there are no vowels. The mind supplies the vowels. And since for hundreds of years after the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivities, a lot of Jews lost their ability to read Hebrew. Uh, they began to adopt the lingua franca of the people around them, and that's what happens even today. You know, there used to be, like in New England where I was raised, a Polish Catholic church and an Italian Catholic church and a Chinese Catholic church and on and on, all these little subgroups because that came from the 20s and 30s when you had these uh, various groups that were immigrating to America, and they only spoke that language. But within one generation, those churches are typically dead in terms of, well, we just speak the Mass here in Italian, or we just speak it here in 
whatever language. And so the Jews lost their abilities, so they read the scriptures in a translation called the Septuagint that was Greek. But Jesus spoke Aramaic, he knew Hebrew, and I have no doubt he knew Greek as well. Paul knew all three languages, so why should I be surprised if Jesus did? I think you can build a real case for that. But he's just said Yahweh. And the scripture says, um, and Judas also, who was betraying them, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They all fell backwards. Uh, and the Greek word here is pipto. Um, and it again, it, it speaks of what Jesus really illustrated in John ten seventeen and 18. Uh, they are all on their back, and it's used in Koine Greek of an outside force pushing something over. And so Jesus, by his words, I am, pushes over a thousand men on their backs. And he doesn't say to his men, well, we'll leave them there on their backs, and uh, we're going to leave. No, he actually allows them to get back to their feet. By the way, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we just mentioned, the Septuagint, the same word pipto is used um, for the downing of the walls on the day that Joshua and the Israelis marched around the city seventh time, and then they blew their trumpets, and the walls fell down. They fell over backwards, so to speak. Um, That's the same word that's used here. So Jesus then asked them, again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. He's really in charge here. Again, he said, um, no one is going to take my life. I have authority to give it. I have authority to take it back up. And this, of course, this act of putting a thousand plus over on the ground, John then adds parenthetically, was to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And this, of course, becomes the basis for Simon Peter with a small army in front of them, taking out a sword, drawing it out, and cutting off Malchus's ear, of which, of course, the Lord rebukes him. And then in the parallel accounts, we're reminded that Jesus has 12 legions of angels at his beck and call. Um, One angel in the Old Testament wipes out 185,000 of Israel's enemies, But Jesus does not call down a single angel. He could have ended that mob scene right there and cut that army right down for good, but he doesn't, again, because he's coming for this cause I've come into the world. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified, uh, to give himself as our substitute in our place so that we could find our forgiveness of sin. So this has nothing to do with what the wackos of our day are trying to illustrate through being slain in the Spirit. And being slain in the Spirit, by the way, is just the opposite of what the Holy Spirit does. If you've ever seen it, and I have, you know, people are on the ground, they're shaking, and they're, you know, out of control. I thought a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It is. This is a total loss of self. Anyway, let's go to the next question. I think we have someone who's been waiting. We do indeed. A live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, we all know, Pastor Brogy, that nothing is a coincidence, and I wasn't going to be home to be able to listen today, but I am, and here is my question. Um, a friend of mine the other night 
texted me that his son-in-law was involved with a gentleman by the name of um, uh, Todd White, and the other name was Tom Loud. Um, I looked up Tom Loud, and what I found on him was that he was very much into faith healing. And so to me, that's that's also a false prophet. So when I heard you talking about Benny Hinn and all this came to my mind, I'm wondering what exactly you know about Tom Loud and the other gentleman, Todd White. Well, um, let me just say that a lot of their so-called um, healings have been uncovered. You could Google it and uh, just type in maybe Todd White fake healing videos, and some people have exposed them that they are absolute frauds and charlatans. You know, when you get these people growing legs and all these other things, they're they're just mechanical tricks that people have, you know, used in order to um, promote error. Uh, I have a... um, a paper that is available in my uh, spiritual gifts class. It's called um, dealing with sign gifts in the new Testament. It's the final section in the spiritual gifts class. So I basically ask and answer the question, is God still doing through people, the gifts of healings and miracles? Now I'm not saying that God cannot supernaturally heal whatever vehicle he may use. He may use medicine. Uh, Sometimes he uses medicine. Paul told Timothy uh, that he needed to take some wine for his frequent illnesses. And he no doubt was uh, just taking water only, didn't want to cross over in any way into using strong drink. And he needed to be adding some strong drink, which was not vodka and whiskey and so forth, but wine uh, to the water. It wouldn't make you drunk, but it would clean the bacteria out, uh, the uh, polyphenols that's in alcohol would kill the bacteria and make the water safe to drink, and Timothy needed to do that. So there's a medical procedure. Uh, Sometimes people um, are healed through medicine. On occasion, God supernaturally heals someone where there's no, um, no explanation at all, but that's not what I'm asking and answering. What I'm asking and answering concerns whether or not God through individuals is doing healing and miracles. And of course, if someone claims this, you you want to um, be healed. Who wants to be sick? Who wants to have cancer? Who Who wants to have MS? And you know, if this person can supernaturally heal me, wow, I'll, I'll try it. And so they, you know, fill a lot of seats and auditoriums and they're getting wealthy off the naivete of people who are theologically ignorant. And by the way, biblically, and I cover this in great depth in this handout that's available at searchthescriptures.org. If you call Search the Scriptures and tell them that you would like to have the uh, section of the spiritual gifts course, and someone may be listening to me needs to take the whole course. And it's uh, not for the faint of heart. It's 128 pages long, uh, but it will walk you through what the Bible says on the subject of spiritual gifts. Um, But what I cover in that course is that miracles and healings were never normative throughout biblical history. So the first one in the scripture to be used of God as an individual where God did a miracle through him was Moses. And, but hundreds of years had gone by before Moses, uh, before any of the great men of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of those guys did miracles. Now, God 
used them to do great things. Joseph was used of God to preserve a whole nation uh, through um, a direct revelation he had been given at a time when God was giving direct revelation because the first word of Scripture had not yet been penned by Moses around 1,400 years before Christ. And so um, God spoke in different ways and in different forms, but none of those guys did a miracle. And then hundreds of years went by, and apart from Moses and just a brief time through Joshua as they enter the promised land, nobody else did miracles. Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, they never did a miracle. Malachi never did a miracle. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, they never did miracles. Now, they witnessed miracles. Jonah witnessed a miracle where he was in the belly of a large fish for three days without being suffocated or drowned. You know, but that's not a problem for God. Um, Daniel witnessed a miracle when God closed the mouths of lions, but none of those guys did miracles. So Moses and for a short time, Joshua, and then hundreds of years went by, no miracles until Elijah and Elisha come on the scene. And again, it's a key spiritual point in Israel's history, so God allows it. And then hundreds of years go by, no one does a miracle until Jesus and the apostles come on. When the apostles are dead, the miracles dry up. And again, it's a key time in Israel's history. It's a foundational time in the church. In fact, the next cluster of miracles that we will see will be done through two witnesses that the book of Revelation speaks of. It's after the church has been raptured. It's during the seven-year tribulation period. So one, miracles and healings through an individual have never been normative in the history of God's dealing with man. Um, so these guys are claiming things that are really, really wrong. And again, they're making themselves wealthy as they, you know, fly around in their $100 million jets and everything else. And they're just con men and, and, and heretics. And we, we need to know sound theology so that when we see, see these fakes, we can immediately spot them. But I would say, read that handout on the sign gifts in the New Testament. And I think, um, you'll have a clear answer on how to help other people who are facing this. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Well, you've answered um, the majority of the next question, but I didn't know if you wanted to add anything to her. This listener says he attends a small church with his son, and the pastor believes in speaking in tongues and laying on of hands with instant healing. Are these gifts for today? Well, uh, no, uh, they're not. Um, the gift of tongues, what he is doing is no different from what they saw three centuries before Christ. Tongues, in terms of the ecstatic utterances of today, go back two to three centuries before Christ. And what these Greek cults were doing that worshiped false gods is no different from what some of my charismatic friends are doing. Listen, the miracle of tongues is a gift that we don't want to depreciate. You know, they'll say, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're attributing evil to the Holy Spirit. No, I'm not. If anyone's attributing evil to the Holy Spirit, it's some of our, my charismatic friends. They are diminishing the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit that is witnessed in the second chapter of the book of Acts, where you have people who did not know a language being able to speak the language and not just the language the glossolalia, but also the dialectos, the dialect within the language. That was a miracle. So I could automatically speak Chinese, but not just Chinese, but Mandarin Chinese. That's a miracle. Uh, that would be incredible. And that's what God did. 
uh, in the early church to authenticate revelation that was coming. So um, add to that, you say laying on hands with instant healing. Well, what happens? You know, I know someone right now with MS. How about if I uh, bring that person with MS to his church so he can lay hands on her next Sunday? You know what he'd say? He'd say, well, she's not healed. Not my fault. It's her unbelief. That's that's how they get around all this stuff. They they don't blame it on their healing abilities. They blame it on the lack of faith of the recipient who needs to be healed. So they're just scam artists, you know. They're they're shysters. Uh, you shouldn't sit under a pastor like that. He he has no right to be a pastor, and he's going to have a lot to give an account to someday. And let me just say parenthetically, when people visit Community Bible Church that come from churches just like this, nine out of ten times, they don't even know what the plan of salvation is. Some of them have spoken in tongues. Some of them have sat in these churches where they've had you know, so-called miracles take place and all this stuff, and, and they don't even know what the plan of salvation is. You see, that is a trick by the evil one to get people distracted and awed over things that are secondary in nature. You know, when the disciples came back, when the 70 were sent out, first the 12 were sent out, then the 70 were sent out, and they were sent out to preach the gospel, and again, these were foundational days, and so, you know, God gave them great abilities, and they came back, and it's kind of interesting, the report they gave. It says, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. As you know, thrilling as it was to see Christ's authority through them exercised even over the demonic realm, Jesus said your greatest joy should be in the fact that you are a saved people, that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's put priority where God puts priority. And I say all that to say that these people who come from these churches who don't even know what the plan of salvation is, we've got real, real problems. And these people who have spoken in tongues and don't know what the plan of salvation is, that should tell you right off that what they spoke in was not from the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God gives spiritual gifts only to those who are born again. And if someone doesn't even know what the plan of salvation is, and they've spoken in a tongue, whatever they've done, it didn't come from God the Holy Spirit because only regenerated, born-again people have the ability to receive a spiritual gift. And there are 16 of the 20 in the New Testament that are still being given. And only regenerated people can have a spiritual gift. It's given on your spiritual birthday. Not only do you get the Holy Spirit, but he gifts you with at least one ability in which to serve not yourself, or to build an ego for yourself, but to serve the body of Christ and to build up the body of Christ because that's the purpose of the gift. So it's a good question. And again, this person might want to take the course on spiritual gifts to get a sound theology in this realm. And you can uh, listen to it online at searchthescriptures.org. If you don't have the Search the Scriptures phone app, you download the app for your Android or iPhone and you can listen to it with your at your leisure. So, 
And I might put in a plug that we are also carrying it right now on the Institute for Biblical Studies, which can be heard Wednesdays at this hour, the 11 okay. o'clock hour. So um, I think we're in episode eight okay. tomorrow. All right. So, uh, and you indicated that the uh, healing aspect was covered in your last. Um, yeah. So um, uh, I think I deal with. Uh, no, I, it might be the next to the last because the last session is uh, abuses of spiritual gifts. And the next to the last is the sign gifts in the New Testament. Uh, but when he mentions episode eight, it might take 25 episodes to cover the seven sections. But uh, I think it's section six in the uh, on the spiritual gifts course. All right, Terry, or Teddy rather, from Guyton, Georgia, wants to know, why do the wicked or unsaved prosper? Can you direct her to, or him, to some scriptures that will enlighten him on what God says about this thought? Well, the the passage that immediately comes to mind would be Psalm 73. Um, but let me just parenthetically say that our God is just. The Bible affirms that. We've been studying that in the Revelation just recently when we were in Revelation 15 and again in Revelation 16. Uh, righteous and true are your ways, O God. So God is righteous. He is true. Moses will say in Deuteronomy 32, uh, I think it's verse four, all of your ways are just. So God is a just God. In fact, he's commissioned his people to deal fairly and justly with other people. That's not to say that God's people are always uh, acting uh, righteously, acting in a way that's right with the Lord and pleasing to him. Unfortunately, many times they do not. But your question deals more with the lost man acting wickedly, and why does he seem to have such a good time at it? Uh, let me read to you a psalm by Asaph. And Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, of the proud, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Uh, therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye budge, bulges with fatness. The imagination of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. And so here's Asaph, and he said, man, what I'm going through is really painful. In fact, let me drop down to verse 16 of Psalm 73. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome. You could render it... It was painful in my sight. It was really hard for him because he's kind of caught in a trap. He's living righteously, and as a righteous person, he's being oppressed by the wicked. And here are the wicked people who seem to be having a high time in life, living fat off the hog, and, and there's no consequence to what is happening. And interestingly, then he'll say here in the middle of the psalm in verse 17, um, Again, it was troublesome in my sight until, here's the big until, until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. In other words, Asaph went to church and in church, I don't know if he was reflecting on prior truth that God had preached or if uh, someone was opening up maybe the Torah and they were reading Deuteronomy 32, 4 that I just quoted and and it just fit together. I perceived their end. In other words, they may be living big and fat right now, but the fact is, is that when he went into the house of God, which, you know, uh, apparently would 
be the tabernacle at this point in Jewish history. The temple had not yet been built, but it was still called the house of God. Remember, the tabernacle was a portable tent, so to speak, though when it was set up in Shiloh, it had a little more permanency to it. Uh, In fact, I was just in Shiloh um, before the rest of the group came when I was in Israel. I always wanted to go there. That was a place where Hannah, of course, came and sought the Lord. And uh, so it's sometimes the tabernacle is even called the temple, especially when it was in that more permanent place where it was for 300 plus years uh, until the temple was finally built. But in other words, he went to church, he went to the house of the Lord, the place where the scripture was read. And and as he perceived their end, he understood, hey, look, the, the sheep, so-called to speak, may be really fat and plush right now, but someday when they're classified as goats, it's not going to be good for them at all. And so Asaph recognizes that, yes, sometimes the righteous suffer. Uh, Why do the righteous suffer? Because we're righteous, because we represent the living God. Paul will say, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy. And so if you are living righteously, you are going to be persecuted. It's a promise from God. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are you, Matthew 5, when men say all sorts of evil against you on account of me. For great is your reward in heaven. When we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness in that same text, we are blessed. Why? Because God rewards us for it in heaven. And so while it may seem like the lost are winning right now, that they're on top and God's people are being oppressed, and in some parts of the world, man, they are experiencing oppression as the people of God that we don't know anything about. I mean, we have growing hatred and animosity towards the value system that we as Bible-believing Christians espouse, but we haven't seen anything, comparatively speaking, to what many of God's people are experiencing in other parts of the world. So as God's people, we will experience persecution. But just remember, those who are not and seemingly are prospering, unless they repent, they will perish. And their end is a terrible end and not an end that anyone would want them to see. Even God doesn't want them to see that end. But in his justice, because he is just, they will meet that end if they do not call upon Jesus in faith. Well, we are out of time, but we're so glad that you could be with us. This Bible line, as all of them, will be posted within a few hours for people to be able to download or for you to be able to send to your friends. Thanks for being with us here today on The Bible Line. Mm -hmm.